No matter who you are, we all have one thing in common. We all want something real. Forbes magazine just named the app of the year, a social media site called Be Real, and it's blowing up with 20 million daily users. It's pretty simple. Once a day, you get a notification to take a photo, and you have two minutes on the spot to show your friends what you're really up to. And here's the beauty. There's no faking, no filter, just real. How refreshing. We are desperate for real relationships. What if we could cut through the mess, deal with the real issues, and experience relationships the way they were meant to be, the way God wants them to be, the kind of relationships that can change your life, stronger marriages, better friendships, and no more fake emotions. Because let's face it, being fake is too exhausting. And the good news is God wants you to have so much more. So let's dive in as we see what the Bible has to say. This new year, it's time to be real. Real relationships, because fake ones are exhausting. Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Everybody off to a new year. Great new year. Say yes. That's awesome. So glad that you're here. Hey, before we get in the message, I want to do one thing briefly. Um, you know, we, we start the new year off really fast around here. And one thing that we want to do, especially with all that we believe God has in front of us over this next year and the next few years, is I just want to kind of start out. And we want to raise the temperature of prayer. And so I want to start out by praying for two things. Number one, for our students as they go to pause, because uh, it's life-changing and transformational for them. But also the second thing is we have a team that's going to North Africa this week to look at some ministry opportunities to look at some areas where we may could actually expand the frontier. So I want to take a second just to pray for those because uh, sometimes, as you know, we may kind of, prayer can be an add-on, you know what I mean? Those of you who know Jesus know what I'm talking about. Prayer is an add-on or we use it as a great transitional element in the middle of a service. You ever seen that happen? You're like, they're not really praying. They're just changing scenes up there on that stage right now. And so uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but I do want to pray. And so if you're new, maybe you're new to faith and don't really even understand prayer and understand what it's about. And if I were to ask you to pray, you wouldn't even know what that looked like. You can just watch what I do, and maybe that's a way that you could learn to pray. And also, at the end of my prayer, I'm going to say this, and all God's people said, and we're all going to say, amen. Let's practice that together. Amen. Now, I want us to practice that together so you'll do it more in the sermon. However, um, more than that, amen in the Bible, what we see is that just means, okay, I, I agree. I'm for that. I agree with you. We're all in this together. So it, no matter where you are, and I always say um, everybody said rather than all God's people said because not everybody in the room is all God's people yet, but you will be, right, by the end of the day. And so uh, if you would, let's pray together. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to pray for us over these two elements. God, we're just grateful for all the life change that we've seen in our student ministry and everything that you've done in their lives, Lord, for the students over the years who've gone to pause and had their lives wrecked and changed and families restored. And God, we just ask you to do it again. Lord, we just ask you to change lives. Lord, I know that there are students who aren't registered yet that are going to be registered. And God, I know there are students who need to know you. God, I know there are students who need uh, to devote their life to being in full-time ministry. And so, God, we just ask you to do that this weekend. Lord, we want it to be more than a great gathering where we talk about how many went, that we can talk about how many lives got changed and how you showed up and how you just stepped into places that were broken and deserted and just gave life. 
And so, God, we just pray for that. <clears throat> Lord, also, we want to pray over the team that's headed to North Africa. Lord, we know that around the globe there are so many people that are in just difficult circumstances that we can't even relate to. And, God, there's areas where you're wanting us to move into, to step into for ministry. And so that, God, over the course of these next days, as they serve there, as they vision there, God, you just give us some next steps. Uh, lead us to the right places that we can be the most effective church that you've called us to be. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. amen. Very good. You did great. <clears throat> so, hey, uh, we are <clears throat> excuse me, launching this new series today called Be Real. Called Be Real. I, th I think all of us have heard that phrase. Hey, we're just keeping it real up here, right? You just, I just got to be me as terrible as you are, right? I just, I just got to be me. That's just, I got to keep it what? Keep it real. And the social media platform has kind of taken over that idea called Be Real. And the way the Be Real works is that you, you know, connect up with some friends and at some point throughout the day, at some random point throughout the day, you're going to get a notification from the Be Real app. And you and the rest of the people that you're connected with, the rest of your so-called friends, you're going to post a snapshot. You're going to post a selfie. Some of you, a selfie is a picture you take of yourself, okay? And so you're going to take a selfie and it's going to get a, a picture of you wherever you are doing whatever you're doing. But what's cool about it, it also gets a picture of the other side of where you are and who you're with. And so you take a picture of that. I have one of me taking a quick be real snapshot. You can see I'm in my office there. And uh, I know some of you are looking at my desk like, what does he have on his desk? Is there anything illegal? No, there's nothing illegal. But you can see that I'm, I'm looking at the camera in the top left corner like some gross nerd. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, but then also you see what's happening. I'm in my office working. I wasn't really, but I did it just for the snapshot. And so, um, but you see, that's the idea. So your friends can see what you're doing when you're doing it. Okay, they know where you are, where, where you are. And you can't retake the picture. If you retake the picture, you get flagged with a little asterisk, and it's a mark of shame. It's a scarlet letter. You don't want that on. Or if you wait, you know, however long you wait, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is, you, it, it posts that, that you have waited that long. And you can't filter the photo. You can't edit the photo. You can't change the photo. It is you being real, just like Instagram, right? Just, just like your Instagram. Now, why would they do this? Why would this be so popular? Why is it different? It's because most of the things that we post are what? Filtered. And most of our relationships are filtered. Most of our relationships are edited. Most of our relationships are superficial, if we're honest. Like, if you did a deep dive into your relationships today, like, how many of them would really last and stand the test of time? How many of them would survive a change in your title or a change in your income? How many of them would make it past a change in your kid's school? How many of them would be able to dive into some difficulties or trouble where you needed help? You know, the, the problem with, with, with relationships that are filtered is that we end up with a filtered version of love. Hey, let's don't miss this. This is really important. We end up with a filtered version of love of love, a version that the world gives us, a, a version that's fake, a version that's superficial, and we just start leading plastic lives. We're like mannequins dressed up for a Netflix special as an extra, or we're just like fake cardboard cutouts. And God deems love so important, so critical, so essential to our lives, it's actually his identity. Have you ever heard the verse, God is love? It's not something he does, it's somebody that he is. 
And so we just want to unpack this idea of, of some of the fake versions of love that we've been given, but also some of the real versions of love that God has given us. And we're going to do it primarily in the context of marriage, okay? Because most people in our country are married because that is the primary relationship for people. It's the first relationship that we have outside of God is our relationship with our spouse. Now, I know not everybody's married. Come on. Right? There are people who are single, and that's great. And if you are single, you are just as valued. Listen, marriage is not the God that we worship, but it's just a reality in our culture that 95% of people will get married eventually at some point. And some people will be married more than one time. So it seems like we should address this most important relationship. Somebody say amen right there. And so we're going to talk about this in the context of marriage, which is going to make it a whole lot of fun today. Um, but also, uh, just a couple of things to set up marriage. We know marriage is under attack. Marriage is different than when we were younger. Let me ask you this question. By show of hands, how many of your grandparents are divorced? Grandparents, raise your hand. So you see a sprinkling throughout the room. So how many, how many of your parents are divorced? Raise your hand. Right, more hands go up. How many of you know somebody that's divorced? Raise your hand. Right, that's just about everybody. So you can see kind of how it's changed over the course of history, really in a very short period of time. So it's important that we address it. And so two things that we believe about marriage, you should always know this, you should write it down, you should memorize it. Um, number one, we believe marriage should be life-giving. Amen goes right there. Right, we believe marriage should be life-giving. You've heard the phrase, ball and chain? You've heard that? You've heard, you've heard that? That's not what we believe. Come on, right? Um, we believe, uh, you've heard that marriage is an institution. Who wants to live in an institution? Um, we don't believe that, right? That's not, that's, we're not share. We don't believe that. Um, but what we believe is that, you know, it can be difficult, right? It can be work, but marriage is life-giving. You should enjoy seeing your spouse. Your spouse should make you better. Um, it should give life. Now, the second thing we believe is this should be long-lasting. That's not what our culture believes, if you notice this. Marriage should be long-lasting. What we see, and when we take vows, I've never done a, a wedding where some, the, the bride and groom have it said, till what? Death do us part. We believe it to be long-lasting, but we know there's difficulties with that. And so there's three things that I hope to come out of today's message. Number one, is if you're married, that you're able to sow some seeds today, do some things that are going to help you plan for the next 20 years, Okay. It's going to help you plan for the next 20 years. It's going to help your marriage to be life-giving and long-lasting for the next 20 years. Now, I hope it goes more than 20, um, but I'm just going to, you know, I feel like it'd be a little arrogant to say I could go more than 20 here. So 20 years, that's number one. Number two, if you learn the principles of love that are laid out today, if we understand some of the ways that we see it wrongly and some of the ways that God has designed it, it's going to help you in every single area of your life. When you get to the end of 2023, You'll find that your job performance was better. You have more satisfaction. You have more influence. You'll find that where you live, you're going to be more connected. You're going to feel more at, 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 on mission where you live. And you're going to find that in every relationship, which are the most important things in life, I think we would all agree. And we know that if we don't believe that, everybody's told us that, so we must be missing something. And so that, that's my hope. And the third thing I hope is I hope that after today, you understand and appreciate more than anything God's great love for you. Amen? All right, so let's grab our Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That was a very long introduction. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Um, I'm going to read through a handful of verses, and if you're new, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to bring it so you can read along. We'll give you a Bible if you don't have one, um, and then we would love for you to read along. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's kind of almost to the end of the Bible. If you're not used to finding things in the Bible, there's a table of contents, so you could go find it there and turn. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 1 and kind of read through, do some teaching, and then make some points on the back side of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul writes this. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So so here's what he's saying. If I commissioned Michael Buble to write a love song for my wife, and he came and performed it on her birthday in front of a live audience, and he didn't have love, it was just a bunch of noise. It sounded like Stephen Gibbs wrote and sang that song. That's what he's saying. So it doesn't matter without love. It's how important and central love is. Verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body up to be burned, if I sacrifice but have not love, I gain nothing. Right, And here's where the rubber hits the road. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And then verse 13. Now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these, the loudest of these is love. The the most important of these is love is love. Literally, the word that Paul uses there is how to live a loud life. If you want a loud life, the greatest of these is going to be love. And so that's not necessarily the way the world views love. Have you noticed that? There's a couple of filters I want to talk about that we see love through. Filters that culture would give us, society would give us, the media would give us, um, you know, wise thinking would not give us. But what, what are these filters? Hey, the first one is just what I want to call romantic love. Romantic love. Anybody understand romantic love? Matthew McConaughey made a fortune off of romantic love, at least up until the Lincoln lawyer, hello. (laughs) Romantic love is just this feely, passionate kind of love. Now listen, the Bible doesn't preclude romantic love, okay? It's not against romantic love. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Man, I hope that I always experience just a little flutter in my stomach when my wife walks in the room. You know, one of the things that I like to do, uh, or I try to do, whenever she walks in the room, wherever I am, I try to stand up. It's just to remind me, I just want to always, I want, I want my feelings to match my actions. But what the culture will tell you is that feelings should drive actions. Feelings should drive actions. But what Paul just said is actions actually drive feelings. Come on. Like my actions, what I do, how I think. And so we have a romantic view of love. You know, like my wife's favorite Christmas movie is The Holiday. Anybody else The Holiday? You like The Holiday? Well, you're terrible uh, because, uh, no, nah, it's, it's a good little movie, but real life's less like The Holiday and more like what? The Notebook. It's a little harder, a little more difficult. It's a little more of a drive. You know, there's a guy named John Haight, and he performed this. He has the happiness hypothesis, and his point is that you can't just rely on passion or emotion. I have a graph here. Now, this graph actually shows um, how relationships 
start with passion. And this is just in a number of months. So from zero to six months, this is kind of how it looks for people. It looks just like a romantic comedy, if I'm being honest. Man, it starts out hot. You're just loving each other. And he's opening the door and she's putting on makeup. He's putting on deodorant. She's changing clothes, like all those things. And then it kind of dwindles off just a little bit. And by the end of six months, it's kind of leveled out just a little bit. And this is some of the way that we experience it. It's not that it's wrong. It's just reality of how life happens. But then he has a, a different graph that shows the long term. And watch what happens while the passion goes down. Man, this companionate love just continues to grow. Listen, you don't fall in love. You grow in love. You don't fall in love. You grow in love. Now, it doesn't mean there's not an emotional connection. It doesn't mean that you don't have some romance. It doesn't mean that there aren't times of passion and enjoyment, but we grow in love more than we fall in love. Listen, you fall in a hole. You don't fall in love for the long time. That took a little while. <laughs> I know I'm talking fast, uh, but we, we, we actually grow in love. Man, there's, there's a little volatility, and some of you may look at that second graph and say, that looks boring. You know what else is boring? Your investment for retirement graph, but it's going where you want it to go, isn't it? It's going to be big at the end. You're going to enjoy it at the end. And even through marriage, there's some volatility that happens, more in, in some marriages than others. There's some volatility that happens. But as you learn to grow in love and remove this filter of just passion being the one and only indicator of love, you're going to grow in love. I wrote this down in my journal this week. It says, we grind through the difficult times. So we can enjoy the best of times. Amen? Man, we grind through the difficult times so that we can enjoy the best of times. First filter. Man, the second filter that we have is um, the performance filter. What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? John Piper, who's a pastor, he says that it's scary that relationships are contingent on people not knowing some things about us. You know, because we want to know what you can do for me. It's a little like this, like tomorrow night, George is going to play. And right now, Kirby Smart could get elected president for sure, at least governor of Georgia. Hello? Man, people love Kirby Smart. But come Tuesday morning, if Kirby makes a bad call or doesn't get that time out or throws it when he should have run it, people are not going to love him as much. It's this performance-based love. Like, what have you done for me lately? It's very selfish. It's very me-centered. It's very individualistic, this, this me kind of love, this performance-based love. And in marriage, what happens is like, hey, if you don't make me happy, I'm out. If I don't get my way, I'm out. It's very consumer-driven. Now, we all know consumer relationships, don't we? There's a product, and as long as at a price point that I like, as long as I get it at a time that I want, as long as it's the quality that I want, man, that's great. But as soon as it's not, I'm, I'm moving on. And too many people have adopted a consumer mindset when it comes to relationships and specifically as it comes to marriage. You know, marriage is too easy to get out of when someone doesn't even really have a good reason to get out of the relationship. And we have this consumer-type mindset. And there's another kind of mindset um, that we have is a commitment mindset. And that I'm committed in this relationship, like that I make a commitment to be in this marriage. Not, it's independent of who you are, and it's dependent on who I am. Now, now one, one caveat here. 
This is not, I'm not giving permission or saying anyone should stay in an abusive relationship. Like, that's never permissible. And if that's you today, you need to get some help. So I'm not advocating for that in any shape, form, or fashion. I'm not saying that I don't realize the realities of the ugliness of life and the sinfulness of people and that some marriages do dissolve. But what I'm saying is as far as it depends on you, has it been a commitment or has it been consumption in in your marriage? You know, um, in history, you know, I... You're very well aware the divorce rate in the United States roughly is 40% of first marriages, 70% of second marriages end in divorce. Do you know in, a, in an arranged marriage where the parents decide who gets married, do you know what the divorce rate is? 100%. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 4%. 4%. Why? Because there's a commitment there. And they didn't start with romantic passion love. They started with a commitment. Like, Can you imagine going to a wedding ceremony? And it was very consumer-driven. Like, you show up, and you get all dressed up. you got to drag your suit out of the closet, Mr. Durham, and you got to go to this wedding. And you, you sit there, and they began to give the vows. And you've gone to a lot of trouble to watch this wedding. And he stands up, and she, you know, says, man, I'm going to love, honor, and cherish you as long as you make $250,000 and don't lose any hair. Right? You'd be like, huh, that's a little unique. And then he says, you know, baby, me too. I'm going to love, honor, and cherish you as long as you can always fit into your wedding dress. A little, little too real? Is that what the problem is? <laughs> but you get what I'm saying, right? This consumer-driven, like, you, you'd leave and take your gift and go back home. That's not what we expect. We, we expect commitments to happen. And in marriage today, it feels like sometimes we aren't, we aren't honoring commitments. Like, here's another filter that comes under that performance one to me is this idea of living together. This idea of living together. You know, in, in previous times that it was, you know, you'd have a time of courtship. You'd have a time where you got married and there would be a commitment and then you'd have sex. But now what's happened is, hey, we have sex. Maybe we live together. Then we decide if we want to be committed or not. And it's backwards. And what is happening is you're building barriers in your life emotionally between you and your prospective spouse. You're like, oh, we don't need a piece of paper. Well, clearly you do because you're saying it's no big deal. And you build up these barriers and these walls and these emotional problems begin to, to steep in because sex is not designed to be able to hold up outside of a marriage commitment. This is the way that God has designed it. And culture just gives us a filter that anything goes. It's very individualistic. It's very me-centered, and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Listen, commitment is the only thing that will give you the power to take her to chemo. Commitment is the only thing that will give you the determination to fight through a rebellious teenager. Commitment is the only thing that will give you the hope to survive a stormy night. Commitment limits my freedom, Stephen. Actually, commitment gives you the freedom you're looking for. You know, the reason I can be me is because my wife has promised that she's going to love me the rest of her life. The reason you can be you is because someone has promised and pledged to you to be committed to you. That actually gives you more freedom and not less. And Jesus proved it. Amen right there? Listen, Jesus proved it. When we were unworthy, when we weren't committed... And when we ran, when we wanted to be selfish, when we didn't want commitment to him, he was committed to us all the way to the point where he died for us. This is the example we have from Jesus. 
So what does it look like to have um, real love? What are some ways that we can do that? How do we remove the filters that culture has given us to be able to step into a marriage and a relationship that's life-giving and long-lasting? You know, one of the books that's always popular this time of year is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Anybody read Atomic Habits? Man, I thought you guys were like overachievers. I was wrong. You guys should get that book. It's a great book, honestly. It's, uh, obviously, it's about what? Atomic Habits. It's about small things that lead to extraordinary results. And so there are some small things that, that Paul has just written about that seem small, but they're really big. They seem like nothing, but they're really everything. And so we just want to unpack a few of those today. Notice in verse uh, 4. Well, let's, let's just kind of read through 4 through 7 again just to, just to re, kind of refamiliarize ourselves with this. Paul says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So, so the first phrase we see there, love is patient and love is kind. Like, don't you love it when your patience gets tested? <laughs> That's something we all look for. I hope today God grows my patience. Like, we don't wake up thinking that because it's not a lot of fun. But when you think about the idea of being patient but also being kind, one of the phrases that Debbie and I use and one of the phrases we use around here is, man, we just want to outserve our spouse. Like, outserve your spouse. Now, I always get a lot of pushback from guys right here. Like, don't you have something better than that? Actually, the Bible doesn't. Outserve your spouse. There's so many times that we want to be served, but it says that, that we should try our best to outserve our spouse. I had a guy tell me one time, a mentor, because I, I know how it is. Like, when you first have kids and you got little kids at home, uh, it's crazy. It, it, it's crazy. If you don't know that, it's crazy. And so I can remember having small kids at home. And it's one of those things like when you drive home from work, you have no idea what you're about to find behind the front door. Have you noticed this? Andrew, have you noticed this, right? Man, it's going it's to be wild. And so you got to be ready. And so you, sometimes you can walk in the house and be like, oh, wow, I, this didn't happen. And this is out of place. And what's going on right now? And I had a mentor tell me, hey, whenever you walk in the house and things aren't the way you want to be, you, you do it. It's your job. Like, you do it. If you want something picked up, if you want something clean, if you want that baby to stop crying, you do it. You serve. Listen, so much of marriage, we want to be the big things. Like, I just want to show up with that diamond ring on my birthday. Just come through, get on one knee, propose all over again. Man, I just want him to, I just want him to plan a, a, a month in, the, in Greece and we can just vacation. I just want all the big things. But some of you that have been married a long time, you know. And it's in the small things, isn't it? Like marriage is a lot more about, hey, are you going to take out the trash or am I? Are you going to change that diaper or are you going to change that diaper? Man, man who, who's going to pick up the kids? Who's going to go to that teacher conference? Man, man who's going who's to help me at the doctor's appointment? Man, so much of marriage are the things that are so small that we just serve each other. Jesus modeled this for us in Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. Hey, this is the example we have in Jesus, that Jesus came and served 
He didn't come to lord it over us to be better than. Jesus came, he was patient, and he was kind. That's not a filter that the world has, but it's a filter that will get you the marriage that you want. Um, He goes on to say this. He says, it does not envy or boast. Love does not envy or boast. In other words, it's looking at the other person and wanting them to be great. It's not envious about them. It's not puffing. Boast literally means to puff yourself up. It's not what it's doing. And so one of the ways that we like to look at this is like, I just want to be able, we should all be looking to liberate greatness in our spouse. To be able to just liberate greatness in our spouse. Listen, the person you are married to is someone that God created to be great. And, and he has entrusted you with the responsibility to help them flourish and live into that. You know, you marry somebody and they'll be like, they're just trying to change me. Thank God they are. That's what you should say. Because you are not everything God's created you to be yet. And God is going to use marriage and other people to be able to help you to be able to become the person he's created you to be. Have you ever noticed how you can look at, people can look at their spouses, you not me, and they can be like, oh yeah, I see all the problems in you right now. I see all all the problems. I see all the rough edges. I see all the bad habits. Someone described it like this, and maybe you've heard the story that when Michelangelo created David, I mean, David's a massive sculpture, 10 feet tall, majestic, magnificent. And they asked him, listen, when you, how did you do that? What, what was your method? He says, well, I just looked at that big slab of marble, and I removed everything that wasn't David. Right? And this is what we get to do in the context of marriage. Because so many times we can see we can see the, the downside to people. Man, what about the upside? When's the last time you had a conversation with your spouse? Hey, what are your big hopes? What are your big dreams? Who, who is it you want to be? What do you want to do this year? Like, how, can I, how can I help you? How can I breathe wind into your sails? Listen, to be married is to have a 50-yard line seat to the miracle that God is making a masterpiece. It's a miracle that God, he wants you to have a front row view of what he's doing. It's a little bit like when Jesus finished out that statement earlier on serving. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a liberation, a set somebody free. That's literally what that means. This is what Jesus came to do for us. He came to set us free, and we get to do that in the context of marriage. You know, he also says this, love does not insist on its own way. And he finishes up by saying it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Doesn't insist on its own way. Doesn't have to get its own way. Doesn't have to be right. Hello? Doesn't have to be right. Got a lot of grins on that one. Now think about this. Third thing we need to do. Say first one is obviously we need to outserve. Second one is to liberate. Hey, third thing we need to do, take responsibility. Hey, hey, take responsibility. Take responsibility for your marriage. Take responsibility for the conflict. Take responsibility for packing. Take responsibility for cleaning. Take responsibility in your marriage. Learn how to respond and not just react. Don't just react. You know, sometimes when we hear take responsibility, we hear take blame. 
I'm not saying take blame. You may not be to blame for whatever problem is happening. You may not be to blame with the mess that got caused or the fight you are in or the problem that can't get solved. You may not be to blame. You don't have to take blame. You don't have to admit fault, but you have to take responsibility for the solution. Listen, you don't have to accept blame, but you also don't blame. Like, don't blame somebody else. Don't always look around. And here's one of the big problems that most of us face and then we get from culture. Nobody takes responsibility for anything. There's an excuse for every type of poor behavior that you ever see. Nobody stands up and says, you know what? Yeah, I missed that. Shouldn't have raised that tax. My bad. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have gone there. My bad. Shouldn't have issued that order. My fault. Yeah, I made a mistake. No, it is always cover it up, excuse it away. Don't take responsibility. Blame shift. If you ever have a conversation in marriage, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm really sorry I said that. But you, you lost. That is not what taking responsibility means. Anytime at the end of the sentence, you don't take full responsibility and you shift it because it happens subtly for most people. It's like, yeah, you know, I did wrong. You know, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have called you that name. But you do kind of look like that sometimes, right? That's, that's going to be bad. But we have to learn to take responsibility. And we just need this in our culture. We just need men to stand up and take responsibility to be men and to lead the way and to quit excusing things due to circumstances or having a bad day or what somebody else did, that's not making progress. And that will not get you the marriage that you're looking for. Man, we need to just learn how to take responsibility. A friend of mine said this, give up your right to be right in order to be close. Don't you like to be right? <laughs> I do. And I don't even just want to be right. I want you to know I'm right. <laughs> I like them both. But you just have to give up your right to be right sometimes. I want you to imagine this. This will be hard for most of us. Imagine this. Imagine the car you have right now is the only car you're going to have the rest of your life. You're not getting a new car. You're not upgrading. If it gets totaled, you're just out of luck, right? You're not going to trade with anybody. This is the only car that you get. Think about how you treat that car. You're going home and vacuuming it out as soon as the service is over. You can get the oil changed. You can take care of it. You can be careful where you park it. You're going to keep it washed on the outside. You're going to have the same sound system. You're going to have the same seats. You're going to have everything is the same. You're not going to be looking online at other cars because this is the only car you're going to get. But what happens in 20 and 30 years? And you have a classic. You have a piece of artwork. You have something that you're proud of. Now contrast that with the rental car you took last month on that business trip. Anybody ever, ever, ever rented a car before? You treat it a little differently sometimes? You may drive it a little faster. You don't really care where you park it. You're not really concerned about hitting the curb, anything like that. You smoke in the car even though you're not supposed to. <laughs> You, not me. We don't treat it the same. It doesn't end up like that. And this is the vision we have, just to take responsibility for what God has given us. And the world would say, hey, pass the blame on somebody else. And, you know, one of the grand uh, excuses uh, of, hey, hey you, we've heard this excuse, baby, it's, it's me, not you. It's me, not you. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. It is you. And that is not a compliment. 
we need to learn what it means. I mean, just to take the responsibility to do our part to make our marriage exactly what God wants it to be. And listen, I'll be honest, this, this goes into every area of your life, just to take responsibility for what God is doing. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, We look at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, for what he saw coming, he endured the cross because he knew how good it was going to be, because he knew the redemption that was going to happen for us. And this is who Jesus has called us to be. And Jesus took responsibility for us when he didn't have to. And so we should take responsibility in our marriages. Hey, last thing. Remember Jesus every day. You knew that was coming, right? I'm, you are in church. <laughs> Remember Jesus every day. He says this. Paul says this. He says, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. So even in love, one of the things that happens is we think, if I love you, I just let you do whatever you want to do. I just accept your poor behavior. The most loving thing I can do is to let you be you. That is completely not true. That like there is nothing that's even close to being true in that. Love actually is a commitment to someone else's good. So it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice when someone is acting uh, in ways that are detrimental to their health and to mine. It, it's, it doesn't rejoice in that. It actually rejoices with the truth. Now what the Bible says is that Jesus is the truth. And so what we should do is to remember Jesus every day. Listen, we can't sweep, th sweep things under the rug. And when you follow Jesus, you can't sweep things under the rug that don't honor him, that don't fit the gospel, that don't follow after him, that aren't his behaviors or that aren't things that he would do. You can't, can't sweep those under the rug. You see, real love points to the truest love of all, and that's the love of Jesus for us. Man, he, he, he came so far down that he would die for us, that Jesus would come and live our life, die our death so that we could have his life. I mean, that's the truest love of all. You know, as I was saying earlier about divorce statistics, you know, there's 40% of first marriages win divorce in the United States. 4% uh, of arranged marriage is crazy. I know some of you parents are like, I knew I liked this church, right? But there, there is one thing that couples do that, will res that 1% of these couples get divorced. 1%. Like, if you knew that were true, wouldn't you, wouldn't you run that down? Like, 1% of those couples get divorced? What is the one thing we can do? Now, I'm going to tell you what it is, but I'll make you sweat a little bit first. No, I'm kidding. Um, it's it's going to seem like a small thing. It's going to seem like, ah, how is that going to help me meet my financial obligations? Oh, how is that going to help me in my parenting? But it's one thing, and it's super simple, and you're going to be shocked. And you're also, it's all because going to feel a little awkward when you think about having to do it. You know what it is, right? Pray together. 1%. Like, you could be in the top 1% of marriages by just praying together. Now, some of you, your hands are sweating already, just thinking about that. I don't even like to pray by myself, much less out loud in front of someone else. But it's the one thing that you could do for Jesus to be involved in your marriage. It's the one thing. And so it can be intimidating. So Debbie and I, I can remember when we first learned this, I'm like, you mean I got to do this all the time? And we don't do it like we should. But, but basically, we just kind of took a little of the pressure off. This is really going to help you. I didn't say have a church service every day. I said pray together every day. So here's what this looks like. Maybe we're walking out the door, or, you know, I'm getting ready to go to work, or she's doing something, or maybe we just sit down just before the day starts. 
And it's really simple. It had to be for most of you before your kids wake up because your kids are going to be wild. Um, but they need to hear prayer too, so it's probably good. And so it's just real simple one-sentence prayers. All you got to do is this. And, you know, I'll start out. I was like, hey, God, I need some help today. And Debbie needs a lot of help today. She needs more help today than me because she's married to me. Will you help her? <laughs> Things like that. God, we have, you know, our, we have our grandchild, and they're, and they're going through this thing, and they've got this health problem. Or, hey, God, uh, you know, my son is interviewing for a job today. Or, and it's just that simple, back and forth. And then, how do you know you're done? Because you don't want to sit there in awkward silence forever. I'll just look up and say, I'm done. Are you done? And she'll say, I'm done. And I will say, amen, and then we're done. And it seems so simple. And, and it also feels so awkward but to invite God in to what you're doing. Now, maybe you're here, and you're like, I don't even have a framework for prayer. I'm not even sure I believe in God, Stephen. Here's what I would say. What if you and your spouse got together and says, hey, God, we don't know if we believe in you, but if you're real, we want to every day. What would happen? Does it scare you just a little bit? What could God do in the middle of that? Hey, what about you that's living in that conflict right now? Your marriage is on the rocks. You're facing destruction. You feel like you're standing at the edge of the abyss and about to fall in. Like, what if you just began to do that? What would keep you from doing that? Hmm. Pride? Envy? I got to be right? I don't know if I want this to work. But I promise you, if you're that far down the road, the other side is not good. What if you would just do that super simple, super common, super easy, and just see what God would do? You know, I opened the service off just by praying, just because I wanted you to see what it looked like, because it's so easy, and it's so simple, but it is so powerful. It's one of the small everythings that we can all do. You know, there's a story I want to read about a guy named Robertson McQuilkin, um, that just captures this kind of love for us. And I think when we hear his story, you'll be like, yeah, I want that. I want that kind of marriage. Robertson was the president of Columbia Bible College. He met his wife, Muriel, in college. He proposed on Valentine's Day. They raised six kids, served God in a lot of ways, 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1968, they returned to the United States, and that's when he became president of Columbia Bible College. Muriel taught at the college and was a featured speaker on their radio program. She began to lose some of her memory functions, and she found it difficult to plan menus for the parties. She would speak at public functions, but uh, she would lose her train of thought, and she had to give up a radio show. Then she was hospitalized, and of course she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and we know how cruel that is. Robertson just watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner just slowly faded away. She, kn she knew she was having problems, but never understood that she had Alzheimer's. One thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forgot. As she lost most of her vocabulary, the phrase she said most often was, I love you. Robertson said he learned so much about love from Muriel and from God during those times. When he was away with her at his office on campus, she would walk the half mile to his office several times a day to look for him. And when Robertson one day was helping to take off her shoes, he discovered that her feet were bloody from walking. He was just amazed by her love for him. Eventually, he knew she needed him 100%, and the school needed him 
And here's what he said as he was uh, announcing his, his retirement. He said, recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time when she is with me and almost none of the time when I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear and even terror that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. So does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. And if I cared for her the next 40, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit that I used to love, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. Hey, that is unselfish, unfiltered, real love. Jesus said it this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. And the problem with our love is our problem with God's love for us because we just don't believe it. We don't understand it. We don't know the strength and the determination that God has for us and how much he loves us. We don't know the resiliency of love. We don't understand the future he has for us. And if we could get a glimpse of that love, unfiltered, unedited, that would change our life. Amen. Let's pray together.